The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Mental Health, Hope, and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational true stories of recovery. Our knowledge is up close and personal. Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts in our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information presented is not intended to be a substitute for or relied upon as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any health-related questions you may have. Welcome to Episode 39, Loneliness, the New American Epidemic. The Surgeon General has declared loneliness a national epidemic. Well, we are extremely interested in loneliness due to its close relationship to mental illnesses, due to its severe consequences for someone battling mental health challenges. Loneliness can be lethal. I had no idea of the severity of it or its incredible impact, or that a person could overcome it once it reached the chronic stage. Dr. Jeremy Nobel said, It won't just make you miserable, but loneliness will kill you. And that's why it's a crisis. And because of the magnitude of this subject, there are going to be two episodes about loneliness and isolation and social disconnection. The first, today's, will focus on where America is today with this loneliness epidemic and on its impact on the individual and society. Now, the second episode will concentrate on finding the pathways and methods to overcome loneliness and to forge connections that can support recovery. Now, I want to share some lyrics from John Prine's song, Hello in There, because it really sums up what we're going to be talking about today. You know that old trees just grow stronger and old rivers grow wilder every day. Old people just grow lonesome, waiting for someone to say, hello in there, hello. So if you're walking down the street sometime and spot some hollow, ancient eyes, please don't just pass them by and stare as if you didn't care. Say, hello in there, hello. That's beautiful, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you, John Prine. He's one of my favorite singer-songwriters. Now, I want to open with the Surgeon General's letter that announced this health advisory on loneliness. Dr. Vivek Murthy took office as Surgeon General in 2014, and at that time, he didn't believe loneliness was a problem. But later, he took a cross-country listening tour, and he heard stories from his fellow Americans that surprised him. Here are some of the comments he heard. He heard people say things like isolated, invisible, insignificant. He heard comments such as, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself. He heard, if I disappear tomorrow, 
no one will even notice. This led to a light bulb moment for Dr. Murthy, a moment that made him realize that social disconnection is far more common than he realized, that many of us didn't realize. So in May of 2023, he issued a Surgeon General advisory calling attention to the public health crisis of loneliness, isolation, and lack of connection in our country. And here's just one fact that pretty much sums it up. Research found that one in two adults in America reported experiencing loneliness, and that was before the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, loneliness is far, far more than just a bad feeling. Loneliness harms both individual and societal health. And Helen, you and I are going to share information on this in a bit, but here's something that really brings home the profound physical impact of loneliness. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's that's really detrimental to your health. The advisory went on to say that disconnection, social disconnection, fundamentally affects not just the physical aspect I just talked about, but it affects our mental and societal health as well. And like we said, the mental health aspect is, of course, of particular interest to us. So Dr. Murthy followed this declaration of loneliness of a loneliness epidemic with this uh, incredible detailed report about loneliness and isolation and about the healing effects of social connection. And this report is where we've drawn a lot of our information for both today's episode and our next episode. And what I love about this report is that it includes a call to action. It includes a call to action for all of us to start now in our own lives by strengthening our relationships and our connection, our connections with others. And and some examples the report gives and ones that I really love and that we can do is answer that phone call from a friend, make time to share a meal, listen without the distraction of our phones, perform an act of service. And I know, Helen, that today we're going to focus on the causes and the impact of loneliness, and that next episode we're going to focus on what we can do to alleviate loneliness and isolation. But I wanted to look ahead to those solutions we're going to share and end this summary with those beautiful examples of forging human connection. Well, I think it's something that we need to bear in mind today as we look at the extreme impact of loneliness. Now, I want to mention the wisdom of Elmo. The nation's attention has been captured by the Sesame Street character Elmo. Several weeks ago, he tweeted an innocent question. Elmo is just checking in. How is everybody doing? Well, the response has become a cultural phenomenon. So great, it has been covered by the New York Times, CNN, the Today Show. The reason is that the simple question generated 210 million views from all over the world. That's 210 million. You heard me right. Wow. Elmo went viral. Yes. Thousands of the responses were alarmingly negative. People expressing how miserable their lives and spirits were. Many expressions of loneliness, despair, sorrow. As one person said, we trauma dumped on Elmo. The great majority were adults, so isolated that they revealed themselves to a puppet on a children's show. The creators of Sesame Street were astonished by the outpouring, and the thousands of replies were so dark that the official Sesame Street account decided to put on a message directing users toward mental health resources. Elmo then tweeted, wow, Elmo is so glad he asked. Elmo learned it is important to ask a friend how they are doing. Elmo will check in again soon, friends. Elmo loves you. Elmo trended up to number one on Twitter as people continued to discuss their grievances and disappointment in their lives. Now, Valerie, I think this speaks volumes about adults in America today and their 
great isolation from a, from even one close person to confide in or to seek support and caring. So let's move from 210 million people to one. So often, one person's story can illuminate an issue vividly. So Valerie, tell us about your experience with loneliness and your mental health. Well, it's interesting. As I began to think about the role of loneliness in my life, I I found myself asking, was I a lonely child? I had to take a serious look at this because I'm the fifth of six children. So I thought, how lonely could I have been? I mean, I was in this house full of people, and I was particularly close to my younger brother, in many ways his caregiver, But I know that as an adult, I can feel lonely in a room full of people. So being lonely in a house full of people is certainly possible. And as it turns out, an actuality for me in my childhood. And it's funny, as I began to explore this concept of loneliness, the fact that I had an imaginary friend in childhood came to mind for some reason. I hadn't thought about my childhood imaginary friend in years, but I remember playing alone with my imaginary friend often. So I realized I was alone at times, often. I also remember finding places to hide in the house and read. My dad was obsessed with his weekly Time magazine, which uh, came in the middle of the week while he was always out of town. And when it arrived, we had to put it directly on his bedside dresser because with so many people in the house, it could have gotten lost or torn or whatever. And I would go in his room, my parents' room, and find that magazine and get in the little space between the side of his bed and the wall and hide and read Time magazine. I loved it, too. So I spent a lot of time alone uh, out on the swing set as I got older, two- and three-hour bike rides. And I got to thinking, was I escaping the often chaotic nature of our household, or did I feel so different from my siblings that I wanted to be alone? Probably both. And I know that those feelings of feeling different is something that leads to loneliness. That feeling of feeling of separation does lead me to actual separation. But I kept going back to this memory of my imaginary friend, and I was driven to do some research. Now, there are many research hypotheses about why children have imaginary friends, and the reason the research that resonated for me is that imaginary friends provide comfort and companionship for lonely or distressed children. Now, this isn't to say that imaginary friends are a sign of mental health issues because research doesn't bear that out, but research suggests that imaginary friends may be a buffer to those who have had trauma, stress, or loneliness. And I did have early childhood trauma. So I guess that that may have been a coping mechanism for me. And I think, well, good for me. I found one. But again, it was that internal feeling different because of what I had been through. And it was that sexual assault at the end of sixth grade that I had been through. And as I was struggling with that feeling of being different, things got more and more chaotic in our household, and I did indeed escape even more often. I can feel that ache, still feel that ache I had to connect with my family. I had never told anyone about that assault. And that is what I'm talking about, that feeling of being different and disconnected because of that. Now, I didn't know any of that then, but I know now, after extended treatment for the traumatic events I survived, I know now the impact that trauma had on me that led to that isolation and that sense of loneliness. But to keep going, by the time I got to high school, I was deep into drugs and alcohol and boys. I also know now, after much treatment, that I was looking for the right kind of relationship with boys, what I then thought was right. And I, again, only learned that I was seeking this in response to trauma. 
in college, I had a very full social life, full of fun and friends and full of 30 hours a week of working. And that was quite a juggling act. Now, massive amounts of methamphetamines helped me keep all those balls in the air. But again, I began to live a private life inside the me others saw. And the drug addiction definitely led to a private life. Now, I mentioned that I can feel lonely in a room full of people, and I've learned that this is usually a result of comparing myself to others and feeling as though I'm less than. And that that's actually what our mindfulness exercise is about today, comparing ourselves to others. So I think I picked a good one. But let me give you an example of those negative comparisons I sometimes make. Much of my family and many of my friends like to talk about politics and are well-informed in this arena. I don't like to talk about politics, and I'm not well-informed, and I won't go into why. But because I'm not informed and can't intelligently participate in these situations, I let myself feel inferior. I begin to feel disconnected, separate, and I withdraw. To the point that people often ask me if I'm okay. Well, I'm not okay, and I'm miserable in these situations. As our listeners know, I had my psychiatric breakdown at age 34, and though I was married with two children, this dark path of falling into, suffering with, nearly dying from, and fighting my way into recovery with a mental illness was in many ways a solitary journey. No, I absolutely did not go through it alone. I could never have survived it without the incredible support and love. The love for my husband, my sister, and other family members. I... I had my psychiatrist alongside me every step of the way. I had friends who stuck by me, but my internal struggle was a solitary struggle. And I was lonely in this internal struggle, and I isolated often. I built myself a cage. It was, it was my corner of the bedroom. It, it was my refuge and my cage. It was me, my bed, my closet, my books my broken mind, and my broken heart. And it was a lonely place. Thank you, Valerie. That is a, is a hard story, and I'm sure it was difficult for you to tell it. I, I think it's important, though, that you did, and I want to thank you for sharing it. To begin with, Let's look at the key words in our discussion today, just to be sure we're on the same page. Loneliness. The Oxford Dictionary says, sadness because one has no friends or company. The American Psychological Association goes further. Loneliness is discomfort or uneasiness for being or perceiving oneself to be alone. All right, isolation. The state of being in a place or situation that is separate from others. So in other words, loneliness is an internal feeling, whereas isolation is more a a physical place uh, apart from other people. Now, here are two others. Solitude, the state or situation of being alone or remote from society. And belonging, a feeling of being happy or comfortable as part of a particular group. I think those definitions are really helpful to frame our discussion. Now, another thing we've already mentioned several times is social connection. So what is social connection? Well, an individual's level of social connection is not simply determined by the number of close relationships they have. There are many ways we can connect socially and many ways we can lack social connection. And there are three ways to look at the components of social connection. They are structure, function, and quality. Three vital components, structure, function, and quality. So structure is the number of relationships and the variety of relationships and the frequency of the interactions. So the number could be the size of your household, the circle of your uh, friend size, the size of your friend circle, and whether you're married or have a partner. So that's the structure. And then the function of your social 
connection is um, like, how can you rely on these people in your connections for your needs? For example, the function could be emotional support, support in a crisis. Are they a mentor? So that's the structure and the function. And then there's the quality of your connections. And that is, are these relationships and interactions positive, helpful, satisfying, as opposed to negative, unhelpful, and satisfying? So social connection is about structure, function, and quality. And then there's two other things I want to point out about social connection. It's a continuum. It's not as simple as someone is lonely or they're not. I mean, everyone falls somewhere on the continuum of social connection. And what we know is that low connection is associated with poor outcomes and higher connection is associated with better outcomes. The other thing is that social connection is dynamic. It changes over time and it can be improved or compromised by a myriad of reasons such as illness, moving, a job transition, and just countless other life events. They can all move us along the continuum of social connection. I think a major question for both of us has been, so what is causing this epidemic of loneliness? Well, the causes are intricately woven into the fabric that surrounds us at all levels of our existence. So I'm going to put the causes into three categories, individual, biological, genetic, and societal. So let's look at that which occurs within the individual. So many factors contribute to a person's inability to form connections so essential to a healthy, satisfying life. As Valerie has shown us, childhood can be where habits and lessons of making connections are never learned in a dysfunctional family or difficult school experiences such as bullying. Geography can be a cause if there are few people nearby. A genetic predisposition to mental health challenges such as depression and anxiety. Low self-esteem and a sense of unworthiness. The psychological impact of abuse or trauma or a crisis of physical illness and physical pain, grief, the pressures of survival in an exacting world. These are just some of the internal causes of loneliness in an individual. An extremely dark or negative belief system can also provoke loneliness, especially if the individual believes that loneliness is an unavoidable part of the human condition, something to be suffered for a lifetime. And studies show that those childhood deprivations will become more apparent in the adult trying to deal with loneliness. Biological, genetic causes of loneliness are found within our species. This is a relatively new area of explanation, exploration into loneliness. Studies prove that our brains are hardwired for human connection because we once urgently needed to be together for basic survival, such as food and safety. Our brains adapted to expect proximity to others so that despite any advancements of the, mod- of the modern living, we still have a deep biological need to connect. Loneliness has a profound impact on the brain and body. Research shows how a chronic state of loneliness literally shrinks the brain, resulting in less volume in the cognitive, social, and emotional brain centers. Chemicals and hormones aroused by loneliness can push the individual into a state of fear for survival and their impact can cause the dangerous cycle of chronic loneliness. Connection is still essential for our mental health and longevity. One of the most tragic studies of the biological need for connection is with infants who are in custodial care only. Given no consistent human impact, the babies fail to thrive or die. Societal causes for loneliness. And this is the role society plays in the epidemic of loneliness, and it is almost impossible to comprehend as it influences humans at virtually every aspect of their lives. There's community. These external causes can be found in the decline of communal institutions that once provided human connection and a sense of belonging. Today, 
less than a quarter of all American adults participate in clubs, civic groups, community activities, sports leagues, drama groups. And volunteerism, once the backbone of American charity work, has also dramatically declined. The majority of adults do not participate in any kind of social group. And in 2020, only 16% reported that they felt very attached to their local community. Yeah, I find that so discouraging. It, it is. And, and there are other areas where you can see how this has had an impact. For example, faith organizations have declined. Now, in 1999, 70% of Americans belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. In 2020, it had fallen to 47%. And with millennials, this is almost unbelievable. Only 22% attend faith services weekly, and another 22% never do. And given that faith-based groups offer community, belonging, consistent contact with like-minded people, this is a tremendous contributor to the loneliness epidemic. And then here's another huge one, the impact of technology. It is impossible at this time to ascertain the pervasive impact of social media without further study. In a U.S.-based study, participants who reported using social media for more than two hours a day had double the chance of reporting increased perceptions of social isolation. That was more than those who used it less than 30 minutes per day. Now, Valerie, we also have been looking at, you know, that with young people in particular, that they they can be using social media 10 hours a day or more, you know. And also they were asked um, questions like willingness to give up their phone and their answers were, I am not willing, not maybe just flat out. I am not willing to give up my phone or give up social media. Or it, It was astonishing the answers to the questions about their attachment to social media. Well, it's uh, I, it's there. Uh, it's out there, and and we, I just we have to just keep an eye on it because the consequences can be uh, pretty negative. Then there is another societal issue, which is marital status and solitary living. The latest census shows that one half of the American adult population is unmarried. Twenty-two percent have never been married. Single occupant households are the highest ever in recorded history. Now, social status, race, gender identity. Loneliness impacts people of color, gender identity issues, immigrants, LGBTQ+, rural residents, victims of domestic violence due to stigma, discrimination, and isolation. And finally, there is the pandemic. And I think all of us know by now that the pandemic has exacerbated loneliness and also in almost every area of American life. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Helen, you mentioned earlier that we had no idea of the severity and impact of loneliness and social disconnect and connection before we started working on this episode Here are a few of the things we learned as we did our work. Numerous research studies conclude that socially connected people live longer, period. Socially connected people live longer. That was a great thing to learn. In fact, 148 studies showed that social connection increases the odds of survival by 50%. 
The other thing we learned is that being socially disconnected, this is not a good thing, being socially disconnected increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, and infectious diseases. Now, alarmingly, chronic loneliness and social isolation can increase the risk of developing dementia by approximately 50% in older adults. Mm. Yeah, now, that's I mean, really, this is hard to hear. Yeah, it's a scary statistic. But, you know, we are going to focus the entire next episode on how to overcome loneliness. So, we, yes, these are hard statistics to hear. Now, one other one is that the lack of social connection limits an individual's educational and employment opportunities. And it has a profound negative Im- economic impact on society as a whole. In fact, uh the Center for Disease Control calculates that loneliness costs the U.S. economy an estimated $406 billion a year. And that's in addition to the estimated $6 billion a year in Medicare costs for socially isolated older adults. Well, that's... That's sobering. Uh, that will get the attention of a lot of people, I think. The Another thing that we examined is the psychological impact of loneliness, which, you know, is a vast, vast subject. But people's private personal relationships within their lives wield heavy influence on their individual psychology, for better and for worse. More than half of Americans said they were lonely in 2021. Loneliness in post-pandemic America hit certain sectors harder. In the 18 to 25-year-old group, they reported a 61% sense of serious loneliness. That is a huge number. And in two years, the elderly, ages 50 to 80, found their loneliness doubled to 56% in 2020. So this is doubled in two years. So this is all very, this is a strong psychological impact. Now, it made me curious about the role of friendship in America today. Well, there's the good news. 61% of adults say friendship is very important to a fulfilling life. Friendship is more important, more than twice as important as marriage, children, or wealth. However, friendships and time spent have been declining since before the pandemic. In the U.S. Census of 20, uh, that reported that in 2011, an individual spent 6.5 hours a week with friends. In 2021, it had dropped to two hours and 45 minutes per week with friends. One third of seniors haven't made a new friend in at least five years. And in the U.S., almost 50% do not have one to four close friends. And almost 10% have none, no friends. Now, we can also look at the positive aspects of friendship in American life. Um, It's been proven that a person doesn't need a lot of friends. 72% of those with one close friend or more felt completely or very satisfied with the quality of their friendship. One half of women told a friend they loved them in the past week, as did one-fourth of men. I love that. Now, I'm going to take a look at how loneliness, isolation, and this lack of social connection we're talking about are connected to mental illness specifically connected to mental illness, because that is of particular interest to you and me, Helen. Now, we have pointed out today and continuously and repeatedly on this podcast that loneliness has the potential to literally kill those of us living with the mental illness. And I think that's something that you and I both know um, uh, quite well. We do. Personal level. Yeah, absolutely. And what we have 
and we both know this as well, is that this dynamic between loneliness, isolation, and mental illness is a double-edged sword. I'll give the example, um, say, with depression and anxiety. So depression and anxiety are often characterized by social withdrawal, which increases the risk for both social isolation and loneliness. And then we add that social isolation and loneliness predict an increased risk for developing depression and anxiety. So there you go. It's not surprising that the research shows that the odds of developing depression in adults is more than double among people who report feeling lonely. And that's compared to people who rarely or never feel lonely. So there you go. It's that double-edged sword. One exacerbates the other and vice versa. But here's the good news. The power of that social connection when it comes to depression has been proved, proven. We know from research that frequently confiding in others reduces the odds of developing depression among people who are already at higher risk of developing that depression. And I mean, that's just really powerful proof of the importance of social connection. Now, I want to address the issue of suicidality, and I'm going to do that by quoting directly from the Surgeon General's advisory. Here's the quote. Social isolation is arguably the strongest and most reliable predictor of suicidal ideation, attempts, and lethal suicidal behavior, end quote. That's pretty stark. Mm -hmm. So... While many factors may contribute to suicide, more than a century of research has demonstrated significant links links between a lack of social connection and death by suicide. So the other part of this research is that social connection suggests, the other part of this research is that the research suggests that social connection may protect against suicide as a cause of death, and it predicts this especially for men. Now, for the role of social connection in preventing self-harm, it's equally significant because research has shown that for women, loneliness was significantly associated with hospitalization for self-harm. And research also shows that an increase in loneliness was reported among the primary motivations for self-harm. So given the totality of this evidence, social connection may be one of the strongest protective factors against self-harm and suicide. And, you know, Helen, I think this is a great place to wrap up today's topic because Let's wrap it up here with this evidence of the incredible power of social connection. I mean, we've looked at the detrimental effects caused by this lack of connection. So I'd like to end the topic with the fact that social connection is one of the strongest protective factors against the most devastating consequences of mental illness. And I think this brings home just how important it is for all of us to connect with our fellows. fellows. And we may be closing the topic But your beautiful story awaits, Helen. And one of the things we talked about today was how social disconnection and mental illness are a double-edged sword. And I know your journey includes this aspect and many other aspects of loneliness in your life. So would you please share about that with us? I will. And Valerie, I'm going to begin with that great philosopher Charlie Brown from Peanuts. Charlie Brown once visited Lucy's psychiatry booth and asked, Can you cure loneliness? For a nickel, I can cure anything, Lucy said. Can you cure deep down, bottom of the well, no hope, end of the world, what's the use loneliness, he asked. For the same nickel, she replied. Well, my story of loneliness is just about as old as I am. And there's this uh, the great novel by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez called 100 Years of Solitude. And over my life, it felt that long. And to begin with, people are the most important thing in the world to me. And I knew that. But I have learned more about myself and loneliness from creating this episode than I've ever known. 
For the first time in my life, I can see that the core dream of my existence was to make myself into someone who would be loved and respected by others. This single goal has driven me more than anything else across the years of my life. This dream of mine was virtually obliterated in early childhood by trauma that crippled me into adulthood with the loneliness I felt but never knew was abnormal. Here are the core beliefs I developed as a child to understand what had happened to me. I felt bad because I was bad. I deserved what had happened. If not, some good person would have rescued me, right? I believed that I was so dirty and low I should live in the barn with the animals. I was alone because I was to blame for what had happened. And here's the saddest one. I believed that if I couldn't fix myself, somehow turn myself into a person worthy of love, I would have to kill myself. These beliefs were a heavy load for a solitary child and so firmly written on my synapses that I could never shake them even as an adult. Well, one thing's for sure. I worked tirelessly and made myself look good to the world. In school, college, and in my 40-year life and career in New York City, I was profoundly lonely, but seldom alone. I got on well with all kinds of people and treated them well, which is something I'm very proud of. I usually had more friends than I could keep up with. Yet no one really knew me, because I was convinced that if they did know how repulsive I was underneath, I would be abandoned, betrayed, mocked. Despite many relationships and worldly success, nothing persuaded me that I was worthy of love. And I trusted no one. Once in therapy, my doctor said, you see, Helen, you are very over. I know how fat I am, I said. I was certain that he was going to say very overweight. No, he said. I was going to say that you were very overwhelmed. So I was just always waiting for someone to turn on me. And therefore, no one was privy to my authentic self. And that was the person I feared most in the world, this horrible creature in a hideous body. I was my own worst enemy. My self-hatred just never stopped. And the depression I had known since childhood developed into severe mental illnesses in my adulthood. So as an adult, when I crashed, I was given five diagnoses and was devoured by brutal and life-threatening symptoms. From an active social and professional life, I became a mental patient overnight for illnesses that proved to be drug and treatment resistant. Without the structure of work and the company of people, I went straight downhill for years. And the most punishing aspect was a loneliness exacerbated by almost complete disconnection from all people. I simply felt too inferior and ugly to be seen by my friends. It was all I could do to make it to treatment and therapy, and I often didn't. I stopped answering the phone call, phone calls and emails. I wouldn't let anyone in my apartment, even, even a handyman. I spent much of my time reading in bed, weeping, planning my death, and cutting. Now, my friends were great. They continued to reach out, but I could not bring myself to let them see how far I had deteriorated. As I said... The impact of my loneliness makes sense now because I can see what it was doing to my brain and how the brain can perpetuate loneliness, especially in the mentally ill. Given my low self-esteem, I had never really developed truly intimate relationships through school, social, romantic, or professional life. But my brain, hardwired for close human connection as a means to survival, was sending chemicals and hormones that drove me towards something I couldn't have. The impact drove me deeper into isolation and created a towering need for people that couldn't be met. Because my very survival was threatened, I became full of fear, and that ushered in emotions such as anger, sorrow, despair, shame. My depression and increasing illnesses were caused in part by loneliness. And the solitude due to the illnesses reinforced my chronic loneliness. It was a devastating cycle. For years, I was so lonely, I would cry out to myself, where is everybody? Well, this is the grim part of my saga of loneliness. But I hope that in telling it, 
it can demonstrate some of the reasons an individual can feel terrible loneliness despite appearances to the contrary. And also, I hope my crude layman's explanation of the powerful impact of loneliness on the brain can help it be better understood. Now, in our next episode, I will explain how I fought loneliness and found recovery in large part through other people. And to this day, I'm still discovering my authentic self. It's been quite a journey to find love and respect. Thank you, Helen, for sharing that. That's a tough uh, visual, some of those, for me to imagine for you, because I care so deeply for you, and I'm so glad you have come to this vivacious self that I know now, and I'm so glad to be part of this uh, journey you are now on where so many people love and respect you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Valerie, you are the uh, one of the chief reasons that I'm able to continue the journey, and I love the fact that we do so much of it together. And now I have to ask you to do us the great favor of leading us in a mindfulness exercise. It's my pleasure. We will close today's episode in our traditional way with the mindfulness exercise. What is mindfulness? I always give a definition. Mindfulness is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations without judgment. Today's mindfulness exercise is called Unique But Connected. This is something that is helpful for me to remember when I find myself in situations where I am comparing myself to others and measuring myself as less than. Being mindful that I am the best me I can be in that moment is a positive grounding exercise. Let's try it. Let's get mindful. Close your eyes if you can. Settle in and breathe. As always, let's begin with a few diaphragmatic breaths. Whether your eyes are open or closed, let's steady our breathing with two diaphragmatic breaths. When you do this on your own, take as many breaths as you need to to become calm and centered. I usually begin my meditation and mindfulness practice with 10 diaphragmatic breaths. Let's breathe. Inhale through your nose, expanding an imaginary balloon in your stomach while you inhale. Exhale through your mouth, pulling your stomach in as you do so. Drop your shoulders. Inhale through your nose, expand that balloon in your stomach as you inhale. Exhale through your mouth, pulling your stomach in. Pull it all the way in. Keep this slow, steady breathing going. Try to recall a time, if you can, when you were in a social social situation where you compared yourself to others and felt less than, inadequate, or out of place. Maybe when you felt disconnected from those around you. If you can, visualize this situation. Can you recall your self-talk? Were your judgments based on assumptions you made about others in this situation? If so, was there any basis of truth for these assumptions? Were your expectations of yourself or others realistic?
or were you doing the best you could in that moment? Now step back and see this social situation again. Ask yourself, were my self-talk, judgments, or expectations helpful to me? Ask yourself, can I organize my thoughts and mental energy in another way? Step into the situation again. Tell yourself, we all have challenging periods in our lives and thus we are all connected. And we are all unique. I am unique. I am the best me I can be. If your eyes are closed, please open them and gently bring yourself back to the room. Thank you for doing this mindfulness exercise with me. Well, thank you for taking us along with you, Valerie. Uh, It means a lot. I also want to thank everyone for joining Valerie and me today. It's been quite an eye-opener for all of us to learn about the powerful impact loneliness can have on the individual, not to mention the nation as a whole. Our second episode will look at the many ways to fight and conquer loneliness, how social connection can help heal a person's health in mind and body, and the incredible capacity the brain has to reverse its direction and build new pathways. So given what we've learned today about the severe consequences of lonely loneliness, Please don't miss the positive revelations of the second part. So until then, I leave you with our favorite word, onward. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. And wherever you get your podcasts, let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.